So Lord, we are like lost and weary travelers. And especially, Lord, this week, with all that happened this week, I find myself just asking you for direction because it doesn't make sense to me. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would help us to navigate. Help us, Lord God, to preach in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this... uh, message is the 11th in our series from Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's book. We'll pick up where we left off last time uh, before Christmas, but you can also consider the Christmas Eve message as part of this series because you remember that Simeon told us about the temple that Solomon built and what he witnessed in the temple, sacrifice, the circulation of blood and endless life. Ecclesiastes 9.11. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge or grace to those with knowledge, but time and chance or, or occurrence happen to them. I don't think Solomon meant chance. Because I don't think Solomon believed in chance. In fact, in the next uh, chapter, two chapters, he'll tell us that God does everything. Uh, So Solomon isn't talking about events that have no reason. Solomon's talking about events that, strategically speaking, make no sense to us. Okay, 9-11. But time and occurrence, or chance, happen to them all. For man does not know his time. But he said there was a king that knew the time. He said, man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. So hopefully you remember that Solomon was given wisdom Uh, He asked for wisdom, he got wisdom, and yet he appears to be fairly mystified by wisdom. Uh, So it's like he took wisdom, tried to use wisdom to make himself good, and it was like wisdom died. Yet God gives Solomon wisdom, and when Solomon would surrender to wisdom, wisdom would manifest in Solomon. So uh, throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been uh, looking at wisdom, trying to describe what he sees and wondering what it, what it is. So he just said, I see this other great example of, of wisdom. Already we've noted that Solomon sees wisdom hanging on a tree in a garden. He sees a slaughtered lamb on the altar in the temple, and he sees the king of glory seated on the throne in the inner sanctuary of the temple, and somehow they're all the same thing, wisdom. Solomon sees wisdom. And scripture reveals that wisdom is the logos or logic of God. It's the judgment of God. And wisdom in flesh is Jesus. Solomon is describing Jesus. Even though he hasn't met him like the disciples would meet him a thousand years later, Solomon sees Jesus hanging on a tree In a garden, he sees him sacrificed on an altar in the temple. He sees him standing on a throne as all creation sings hallelujah. Remember in chapter 4, he saw a poor youth. He sees this poor youth that went from prison to the throne, and there was, quote, no end to all the people he led, yet the people did not rejoice in him. I mean, who else could that be other than Jesus? In chapter 7, he saw one good man, remember? The Adam among a thousand wicked women. One good man and a thousand wicked women. Who else could that be other than Jesus? The great bridegroom married to all of us wicked people. In chapter 8, he saw a good king. Though all men are desperately wicked, he saw one wise king who always knew the proper time and whose voice should always be obeyed. Who else could that be 
other than Jesus, the Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who rules and reigns from the sanctuary in our hearts. So, so now in 9.13, he, he says, I have also seen this example of wisdom. He's looking at wisdom again. This example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered, also translated saved, by his wisdom he saved the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So Solomon sees a city under siege with great siege works built against it. Now, we modern people don't see this kind of thing normally, siege works, but we think it must have looked something like this. for a poor little hobbit because that's Minas Tirith under siege of the witch king in the greatest movie ever made The Return of the King and The Lord of the Rings J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the the Rings Minas Tirith was a big city but in Solomon's day Jerusalem was a relatively small city but it was a walled city like that uh, the fortress of of Zion in the last 4,000 years Jerusalem has been attacked 118 times It's been besieged 23 times, arguably the most violent place on the planet, besieged 23 times. When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, laid siege to the city in 587 BC, the siege lasted for 18 months. The city was locked down and conditions with inside the city were so bad that according to scripture, some mothers ate their children. A city under siege is is locked down like a prison cell except it's locked from the inside out. When the Romans laid siege to the city, 40 years after Christ was crucified, conditions were very much the same as they were when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that 1.1 million people died in the siege of Jerusalem. The city was reduced to a living hell. It became a grave. In Greek, the word is Hades. In Hebrew, the word is Sheol. The Romans burned the bodies of the dead Jews in the valley of Gehenna. Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, they're all translated hell in many English versions of the Bible. But a city locked down turns into hell. Well, Solomon, king of Jerusalem, sees a poor wise man who saves the city by his wisdom. The man isn't Solomon because Solomon, sure as heck, wasn't wasn't poor. Commentators try to find historical figures that Solomon might be referring to, but none of them seem to fit. And then then there's this this question, how this poor wise man saved the city? That seems to be, how did he do it? That seems to be something of, of a mystery. It's puzzling. We would think that if a poor wise man were to save a city, it would be through strategy. The word strategy comes from the Greek word strategos, which means commander, uh, commander of usually military troops. The strategos develops and implements a plan or a strategy for utilizing power. So a poor wise man could direct military resources. 
um, soldiers, catapults, archers uh, against the enemies of the city in a way that might save the city. And a poor wise man could direct resources within the city in order to save the city. So a city under siege desperately needs great stores of bread in order to feed the populace. And a city under siege would also need great stores of wine. The alcohol in the wine kills the pathogens in the water. And a city under siege would also want to have great stores of money in order uh, to pay uh, bribes or ransoms because as Solomon says, money answers everything. A poor wise man could direct the military resources, manage internal resources, and unite the populace. As we said a few weeks ago, in our message on Solomon and politics, worldly rulers, they, they unite people with promises of two things. Uh, to help them get vengeance upon their enemies and to help them save themselves. Well, I'm just saying the poor wise man could seemingly save a city by formulating a strategy and coercing others to follow it. And, and yet that cannot be how this poor man saved the city. Because according to Solomon, and I quote, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So who's this poor man? What is the city and how does it get saved? In other words, who or what is wisdom and how does it work? Well, Let's just keep reading like we have been through Ecclesiastes, okay? As Solomon describes wisdom, we can't talk about everything, but hopefully we can observe a few pertinent things. And then I want to swing back and, and come back to that question, how does wisdom save the city, okay? So we'll just read Ecclesiastes 9, 16. The poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. You know, it only takes one sinner to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Kind of like it only takes one sinner to um, nail Jesus to a tree in, in a garden on Calvary. Kind of like it only takes one blood clot to damn the circulation of blood in the flow of a body and thus damn the, the whole body. Well, anyway... He continues, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Uh, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart inclines him to the, to the left. Now, this is a marvelous proof text for Republicans, don't you, don't you think? Um, but, but Solomon probably doesn't mean that uh, uh, everybody that's wise or Republicans are wise and Democrats are fools. What, what he means is that um, wisdom and foolishness walk in opposite directions. Even when the fool walks on the road, literally on his own way, he lacks sense and he says to everyone that he's a fool. That means just his manner of walking advertises that he's a fool or he actually says to everyone, you're a fool. So fools are the people that say to everyone else they're, they're fools. Verse four, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an era, uh, error, sh shagaga, unintentional sin, er, a sin proceeding from the ruler. So he's saying, don't run from rulers, but there's definitely something wrong with the rulers of this world. <laughs> Jesus said that Satan is the ruler of this world. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich, perhaps rich in wisdom, sit in low places. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Doesn't make sense. He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through, through a wall. He who quarries stones, which certainly is a good thing to do, he quarries stones is hurt by them. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. It's like Solomon said already, time and chance happen to all. We think wisdom is a strategy to deliver us from time and chance. But time and chance happen to all, says Solomon. So wisdom is not a strategy. 
to mitigate against time and chance. Wisdom is not a strategy to maintain control of your bread and your wine and your money. Wisdom is not a strategy to help you save your life, your city. Nonetheless, wisdom saves the city. Verse 10, if the iron is blunt and, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. You can use sharp iron to help you succeed, but wisdom makes you succeed. As if wisdom is living and active and sharper than any chunk of sharp iron. <laughs> As if wisdom is active and we are like its tool. Verse 11, if the serpent bites before its charm, there's no advantage to the charmer. The words of the wise man's mouth win him favor, or more literally, they are favor, they're grace. But the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness or evil boasting. The word literally means like singing hallelujah to himself. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? A fool says, look, if you do this, then this thing will happen. And if you do that, then this other thing will happen. Let me tell you what will happen and how you can change and predict and know and manufacture what will happen. But Solomon says no one knows what is to happen. So wisdom says, I don't know what will happen. So wisdom, I don't think, is about producing plans and strategy. Wisdom is not taking knowledge of good and evil and formulating a map for future success. You know, a, a fool will give you a lengthy and detailed map to achieve st success, a strategy for his success, which means that he probably doesn't know what success is. Verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him. I get weary a lot. That's a little scary. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So the poor wise man saves the city, but the fool doesn't know the way to the city. Maybe that's because he doesn't know what the city is. He probably thinks it's like asphalt, bricks, and shopping malls or something. In Scripture, the very first city that's ever built, do you remember who built it? Genesis chapter 4? Cain. Cain, right. And he built it with disobedience. Because Cain's punishment for jealousy and murder of his brother was to wonder the face of the earth. And the first thing he does is build a city. A city built on jealousy and murder. The second city built in Scripture that we read about in any detail is Babylon, Genesis 11. It's a city and a tower built by men who are trying to reach heaven, trying to capture heaven for the, trying to make a name for themselves is what it says in Scripture. It's a city built on pride, and God comes down and destroys it. The next city we read about is Sodom, a city built on lust and greed, and likewise, God destroys that city as well. Actually, the whole Bible is about the construction of a particular city, a city named Jerusalem, that's Solomon's city, and it means city of, of peace. And ironically, it gets destroyed more than any of the others. And it's on the verge of destruction right now because Jews say it belongs to them and Muslims say it belongs to them. Even some Christians say it belongs to them. Which makes me wonder, do they even know what it is? Most, if not all, the prophets, including Jesus, speak of the necessary destruction of Jerusalem. They say that her sins are worse than those of Sodom. You see, Jerusalem needs to be saved from herself. The prophets refer to her as a whore. And she's the one that crucifies the Messiah by taking his life on a tree in a garden. You, you see, a city is so much more than bricks and asphalt and shopping malls. A city is a society. 
an assembly, a a gathering, a group of people, like a party or even a, a church. A city isn't just a building. A city is an economy. And a healthy city is an economy of love. The circulation of life. Well, the fool doesn't know the way to the city because the fool doesn't even know what it is. Sometimes I wonder if we know the way to heaven. I wonder if we even know what it is. We think faith is a strategy to get us to heaven. Kind of like we think love is a strategy to get us saved, to get us to heaven. Kind of like we think obedience is a strategy in order to obtain the kingdom of of heaven. But maybe faithful obedience, which is love, is heaven. So the destination is the way. So if you don't love the way, you're not gonna arrive at the destination maybe the destination is the way and the way is the destination people will crucify the way in order to receive the destination receive the destination or seize the destination because they don't know what the destination is they don't know that heaven is an economy of love and faith is the substance of things hoped for Verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not want to know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in, in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Sometimes we think that wisdom is laziness, but it's actually just the opposite of laziness. Uh, wisdom bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Wisdom does all things and will maybe even do all things through you. Verse 19, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Bread, wine, and money are pleasure and power. And in a city under siege, the most strategic thing that you can do is guard them, especially the bread. Guard it with your life because it is your life. But what if the king tells you different? You know, we've been preaching about the king enthroned in the sanctuary of your heart. Verse 20, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters. Cast your bread upon the water. For months now, my mind has been occupied with this verse, this line, because of all the things that one could do in this world, just casting your bread on the waters seems, of all of them, to be most non-strategic. Especially if you're guarding a city or trying to save a city. Cast your bread on the water. Sacrifice the bread. And come to think of it, sacrifice itself is pretty non-strategic. You know, we tend to think that people sacrifice what they hated or what they did not like, but that's not the case with the Jews. They were commanded to sacrifice what was most valuable to them, what they truly loved, uh, like a spotless lamb or the firstborn calf. Sometimes the sacrifices were eaten. They would have like a barbecue. Many times the sacrifices were just entirely burnt up. And so worship was literally casting bread, wine, lambs, calves onto the fire. It would be as if we collected the offering, then we all brought it up front, and I lit it on fire, and we all started yelling, hallelujah, as it was consumed in front of us. I mean, that seems non-strategic. And I think you might say, hey, Peter, that's bad stewardship. (laughs) But I think Jesus might say, no, that is stewardship. Building barns for your grain is bad stewardship. Sacrificing your bread is good stewardship. Cast your bread on the waters. 
Sounds like the waters of chaos in Genesis 1 or the waters that are the seas that represent the nations. Cast your bread on the waters. That destroys bread. So it's, it's not a recipe for like making beer or something. Over vacation is watching this special on how you make beer and you basically cast bread on water. So I thought maybe that's it, but I don't think that's it. It's not a recipe for making beer or pudding. It's a recipe for losing your bread entirely, just entirely. Cast your bread on the waters for you will find it after many days. The word translated many is usually translated multitude. But I think the translators are trying to make some, well, many, but no multitude of days. If you cast your bread on the sea and you find it after a multitude of days, that's a miracle. Like a death and a resurrection. Cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. Very important numbers in the Bible. For you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Cast your bread on the waters. Well, this is Solomon talking about all bread? Because he just told us like in the last chapter, eat your bread with joy. Maybe that's a form of casting on the waters. I, I am not sure exactly. Maybe he's talking about old bread in some way, but I suspect that he's talking about some very specific bread in a rather shocking way. You know, every day that Solomon went to the temple, what he would do is he would basically just sit in front of bread. The bread of the presence. Every Sabbath, the priests were commanded to place 12 loaves of bread on a golden table in front of the veil that separated the throne of God from the people. The loaves were called the bread of the presence or the bread of the face or sometimes the show bread. God called the bread in Leviticus 24, he called the bread a covenant forever. This is the Old Testament, okay? He called it an endless or an eternal covenant. The bread was a constant reminder that Israel's life depended on God's sustaining presence. In the wilderness, God sustained Israel with bread that fell from heaven called manna. But you couldn't hoard the bread. You couldn't do business with the bread. You couldn't strategize with the bread. You could only enjoy the bread. Now, in the present moment, in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. In John 14, he says, how can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you get that? Jesus is the showbread and the manna. And he seems to just throw himself on the waters. A great example is John 6. Read it uh, today when you get home. In John 6, huge crowds follow Jesus. Huge crowds. He feeds 5,000 people, and I think that's just counting men because that's the way they did it then. Uh, thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. And the disciples gather up 12 baskets of fragments like the 12 loaves of the bread of the presence in, in the temple. Jesus is the showbread. Jesus then walks on the waters of the sea. The crowd finds him. The crowd finds him on the other side. It keeps growing as he proclaims, I am the bread of life. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. He tells them that he is the bread of life and that he will cast himself on the waters. He will give himself for the life of the world. He will become broken bread. And that seems entirely non-strategic to the crowds. <laughs> and the fact that he would tell them seems entirely non-strategic to us. For when the crowds heard him say this, many just chose to leave. I mean, if you're into like church growth, John 6 is entirely non-strategic, entirely. Jesus shrinks the crowd, many of his disciples leave, and he turns to Peter and he says, now are you gonna leave too? Peter says, where else would I go? It's a struggle for him, but, but he stays. 
But he continues to wrestle with Jesus' strategy or lack of strategy. When Jesus reveals that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, and be killed, Peter rejects the strategy, saying, may it never be! And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan! Then Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and come follow. Take up take up a cross what kind of strategy is that I mean seriously isn't that like anti-strategy isn't strategy about maintaining control Uh, taking up a cross is the absolute surrender of control it's no wonder that Peter denied Jesus and Judas betrayed Jesus ironically I think they both wanted to save Jesus they both wanted to hang on to Jesus but they were utterly frustrated with Jesus for he kept giving himself away in fact the very night the very night that they betrayed him and denied him just before that Jesus had taken bread and broken it and said this is my body as if he was just throwing it on the waters A few hours after that, that very day, Jesus hung on a tree in a garden. The sky grew black and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, but he wasn't just reciting Psalm 22, he was living Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? Why? He wasn't acting. You see, I think at that moment, Jesus really did not know why. He didn't know why, and yet he still surrendered his spirit, crying out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I'm saying that at that point, the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry, at that point, his obedience was entirely non-strategic. And yet... He is the very strategy, the very logic of the living God. His obedience was entirely non-strategic. His obedience is called faith. His spirit fell on the church at Pentecost. In 40 years, that old Jerusalem was destroyed. And then on the island of Patmos, saw John saw the new Jerusalem. He saw it coming down from heaven. Not just a vision of the future. He says, I see it coming down from heaven. Jesus is the poor wise man who saved the city from the ruler of this world and saved the city from her own depraved self. Jesus saved the city in every possible way. Jesus saved the city and the city's us. And what did he save us from? our sins and Jesus invites us to help him save the world in exactly the same way not by strategizing but by becoming his strategy becoming his body his bride his living temple you see the new Jerusalem is coming down even now and her gates are never shut we are the new Jerusalem and we are the pearly gates that are to be always open you can read about it in the revelation you are God's living temple now as we learned last month In your heart, there is a throne room, and uh, on the throne stands the slaughtered lamb, the king of kings. He is the decision to love. He's the judgment of God. He's wisdom. He's faith in God who is love. Julian of Norwich wrote this. Then our Lord opened my spiritual eyes and showed me my soul in the middle of my heart. I saw my soul as large as if it were a kingdom, and from the properties that I saw in it, it seemed to me to be a glorious city. In the center of that city sits our Lord Jesus, true God and true man, glorious, highest Lord, and I saw him dressed imposingly in glory. He sits in the soul, in the very center, in peace and rest, and he rules and protects heaven and earth and all that is. Rules and all that is. Proverbs, Solomon writes this, 3.5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Isn't that our strategies? In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Trust in the Lord now. That's what the Lord wants. That's all that matters. 
Trust, faith, trust in the Lord. And the king in your heart will move the path. See, that's just out of our thinking, but he has that power. He has the power to move the path under your feet. So the question for us is never strategic. The question should never be, where's the path? The question is always, do I trust the Lord? You know, when my children were little, they never navigated with strategy or a map. They navigated with my presence. If they were with me, they were never lost and always found, and that's how they viewed reality. So the question for the children of God is never strategic. Where's the map or what's the strategy? It's got to always be personal or deeply existential, a question you ask in the depths of your being, do I trust the Lord? You know, that's how Jesus navigated. He said, I only do what I see my father doing. It's the way my kids navigated. Soren Kierkegaard wrote this. The common view thinks that God has a cause in the human sense of the word. You know, he has a cause and he wants us to be a part of it. So he needs our strategies and our ideas. The common view thinks that God has a cause in the human sense of the word. If we follow this line of thinking, God becomes a minor character who arrives at the embarrassing dilemma of needing human beings. No, no, God has no cause, is no advocate in this sense. For God, everything is infinitely nothing. Any second he wills it, everything, including all opposition to his cause, becomes nothing. Wanting to serve God's cause can never mean the same thing as coming to his aid. No, to serve God's cause is to face examination. In other words, God doesn't need your strategies for saving your life, your city, your, your world, but God commands you to face examination. God calls you to stand before the throne in the sanctuary of your heart and submit yourself to his judgment of mercy. That judgment burns away the old man that trusts in the self and it reveals the new man that constantly trusts him living in the light of his mercy and his love. Another way to say that is that we must constantly love because we constantly see that he first loved us. And love is everything that God requires. Love is how God saves the city. Love is casting your bread upon the waters. Love is losing your life for the sake of the king and finding it. Love is presenting yourself a living sacrifice. Love is not a strategy for some other end Love is not a strategy for some other end. Love is the end. Love can be terrifying in this world, and yet it's actually the presence of the next world. There is no greater success than, there's no greater success than love right now. Tony Campolo is an old friend who used to come speak at the church every now and then, and he used to tell one of my favorite stories about a friend of his named Charlie. He and Charlie went to school together sometime in the 60s and both of them received PhDs together. Both of them became kind of a success together. Charlie uh, got a degree in English literature and took a job as professor of English literature at Trenton State University and Campolo went on to Eastern College. Uh, one day, just a little while after graduation, and they both moved on to their jobs, one day Charlie's mother called Tony. And she said, Tony, you got to speak to Charlie. You got to speak to Charlie. Three weeks at his job, Tony, and he quit. He's a PhD in English literature. What's he going to do? And Tony said, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. I'll talk to him. So he went and found Charlie living in a little apartment someplace in New Jersey. And Charlie said, sit down, man, just sit down. And so Tony sat in Charlie's beanbag, beanbag chair and Charlie looked at Tony and then he just said, I quit. I quit, man. Composer said, I know you quit. Why did you quit? He said, I can't take it anymore. I can't teach those people. 
don't even know what I mean by those people. Students, students that are there just to get a, to get a degree, uh, in order to get a job, in order to get more money. I can't teach those people. I share deep existential truths gleaned from eons of English literature and the kid in the back row raises his hand and says, Professor, do I have to know this for the test? I can't teach those people. Those people use Charlie as part of their strategy to become a success. And to be honest, Charlie was probably using them as part of his strategy to become a success. So I, so I quit, man, I just quit, said Charlie. Well, Charlie, how are you feeding yourself, asked Tony. And Charlie said, I'm a mailman. Tony said, wow, a PhD mailman, that's impressive. And then not knowing quite what to say, he said what he thought he should say. Well, Charlie, if you're gonna be a mailman, you be the very best mailman you can be. And Charlie said, I'm a lousy mailman, I'm a lousy mailman. He said, what do you mean you're a lousy mailman? He said, I visit. You visit? He said, yeah, Tony, I visit. You wouldn't believe how many people never got a visit until I became their mailman. As Charlie talked, Tony got a picture of who Charlie was and what Charlie was doing. Charlie was constantly losing himself and finding a city. He was sitting with lonely widows counseling troubled teenagers, listening to jokes told by old men who hadn't told jokes to anyone in years. Tony realized that Charlie was delivering far more than the mail. Charlie was delivering the gospel. Only problem is, said Charlie, I just can't sleep. Tony said, why can't you sleep? He said, who can sleep after 20 cups of coffee every day? <laughs> Charlie was saving the city. How? By casting his bread on the water. Charlie was the new Jerusalem coming down. Maybe if we'd stop developing and implementing strategies for church growth and winning the culture wars and reclaiming our country for God, and maybe if we stopped strategizing and simply obeyed the king in, in our heart, maybe if we simply loved God and loved our neighbor, we'd see the new Jerusalem coming down, the kingdom of heaven in our midst. Tony says Charlie's the only mailman he knows for whom all the people on his route get together, rent a gym, and throw a party for him every year on his birthday. Charlie casts his bread on the water, and it's already coming back. Do you remember what saved Minas Tirith in Gondor? and ushered in the next age in the Lord of the Rings, it wasn't military strategy. It wasn't the use of power. It was actually the decision to surrender power for the sake of love. who surrenders the ring of power to the fires of Mount Doom, symbolic of the judgment of God. And that's how the city is saved. The sacrifice of self. But it wasn't an easy decision on Frodo's part. Actually, he sacrifices old self, the golem. In Hebrew, the golem, the unformed substance of 
his old self. He gained his new self, sacrificed his old self, sacrificed his old self, gained the new self, an entire new world. Every time we stand before the king in our hearts, the fire of his love burns away the old man that trusts in his own strategies and reveals the new man that is the very strategy of God for he loves in the image of God. And love, like we learned on Christmas Eve, is sacrifice. It can be painful in this world and yet it binds everything together in the next world. Faith in love is what constitutes the eternal city. 14 years ago, a friend of mine had a vision during one of the sermons that he he told me about, wrote to me about later. As he was sitting in the service, he heard Jesus say, "Uh, come up here and let me show you. And at that, he found himself crucified on the cross with Christ. And we always had a cross in the front of the church. So he saw himself on that cross with Christ. And then he he writes this, I looked out over the room. I, I saw people praying, worshiping, crying, scared, anxious, children running around. He saw all of your stories. Next, I started seeing a lot of suffering. I saw people with cancer enduring horrible abuse. I also saw a person executed while on their knees, face and hands uplifted as their body was riddled with bullets. I saw people die in the German concentration camps and I saw Peter get stoned. And he clarifies that Peter from the Bible gets stoned, which I'm like, good, glad that was not a prophetic thing. But he said, I saw Peter get stoned. And then he writes, at that point, the vision just ended. And I told God, that can't be it. There's got to be more. He told me to be patient and to come up a little bit higher and then to look closer. When I did, I saw that all of this was happening all at once. Within the walls of the New Jerusalem, the gleaming white walls with flags flying in the wind. This is heaven, he said. This is what the new Jerusalem is made of. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Of them consists the kingdom of God. Blessed are those persecuted for righteousness sake. Of them consists the kingdom of God. As if it's built with living stones. Do you understand the new Jerusalem is made of the old Jerusalem, yet filled with love? The new Jerusalem is made of people that have learned to love. All suffering is an invitation to love, an invitation to cast your bread on the waters, an invitation to lose your life and find it in love. And as you know, the new Jerusalem is a city, and the city is a temple, and the temple is a body, and a body only lives in freedom and joy when each member sacrifices for all the others. That's not a strategy to obtain life. That is life. And so on the night he was betrayed by us, Wisdom took bread and he broke it and he showed it to him. This is my body given to you. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, eternal covenant, in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. This is wisdom. This is the decision to love given to you. This is the salvation of the city. See, God is not giving you a strategy. God is giving you himself. And so come to his table and be saved. let's pray. Lord God, I I guess I I just want to pray with the idea that we would pray constantly. So this isn't something we just do in in a moment at the end of the service on Sunday morning, but 
this is the center. This is the center of the universe, the place from which we live our lives. Lord God, we surrender to you all of our strategies. For Lord God, in our fear and our shame, we strategize to always save our cities, to save ourselves. And yet, Lord God, you are the strategy that is surrendering the self that we might be lost in you, that we might be part of a life greater than ourselves, that we might be your body, your bride in this world. So Lord God, as we come to this table, we surrender all our strategies and we receive your strategy, which is not a map, but your very presence in the depths of our being. Lord, we love because you first loved us. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. And so may you crown him with your crown. And where is he? Well, you just came to the table, right? And you took the bread. And that's a way to tell you that he's right here in your heart. And that's where you're to crown him. Now, after a sermon like this, someone will say, oh, so is it wrong to have strategies or to make strategies? No. I'm just saying that your strategy won't save you but the love with which you make it is the difference. And that's good news because I'm 55 and I'm tired of strategies. I mean, I I did the zone diet, tried that one. Um, the, The Atkins diet, oh, I prayed the Jabez prayer a bunch of times, I tried that thing. I was baptized three times, last time in the Jordan River. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, gone down front, tons and tons of times. I've tried all sorts of of strategies and still I I want more strategies. So on a week like this when it feels like all hell has broken loose, I'll lie there at three in the morning just going, God, what am I supposed to do? Do you ever do that? Do you ever say, what do you want me to do? Do I go to the right? Do I go to the left? Do I go this way? Do I go that way? What do you want me to do? And after I yell at him for a while, it feels like sometimes he says to me, Peter, I already told you what to do. Love. The Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. How do I do that? You can only love because I first loved you. And so what was he doing? What is he calling me to in that moment? To come before the throne and surrender myself to his love because I'm feeling like I'm not a success, like I can't make the strategies work. But what is success? Success is love right now. So right now you can love and you become his strategy and you save the city or he saves the city through you. And so may you live in that place before the gaze of your father as he looks at you and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. May you love because he first loved you. In Jesus' name, may you believe the gospel and live it. Amen.